parable of the prodigal, the great parable, the great story that Jesus taught, that He gave us a gift. It's a gift. This story is a gift because it is a picture of the heart of God. And some of us, the larger issue are not the points that we're going to pick up. Really, it has to do with the overwhelming... uh, In a a way, for me, it's it's the blessing of the Lord that comes through this story for you and I to sit with and to own fully as our own. And so I'm just going to read uh, the passage from Luke 15 in the Scriptures. There was a certain man, he had two sons. We've been talking a lot about this and breaking it apart and looking at it. But he had two sons, an older and a younger. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood, the inheritance that he asked for. He gave it to him. We talked about how, what that must have been like and um, what it meant and what a devastating break that would have been. And it says that he, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and he journeyed to a far country. We talked about the far country being a metaphor for life away from God or from the place that we're supposed to be, away from home. He traveled to a far country and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal or reckless, the old version says, riotous living. It was a a wasteful, prodigal, reckless way of just wasting away these things that he had been given. These hard-earned inheritance was squandered with just a an unthinking pursuit of, of, of pleasureful living, and, and it resulted in him having nothing left. It says here that when he had spent everything that he had, he had spent all, there arose a severe famine. We talked about the economic downturn, and he began to be in want. That is an absolute need. And then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country. He finally got hired on. He was desperate for work, and he was sent to to the fields to feed the swine or the pigs. And, and again, for the audience that Jesus was speaking to, for this Jewish young man to lose everything and then have to become so desperate that he was willing to accept work, working with pigs and, and the, the fact that they were such an unclean animal and what that would have meant. It was not just the loss of his self-respect. It wasn't just the loss of the money. It was also the loss in some ways of his identity. That he had ri- The picture Jesus gives us is someone is of someone who has hit absolute rock bottom. And it says he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but no one uh, gave him anything. He might have been been invisible. Um, He didn't count. Nobody cared. He was abandoned. He was lonely. He's a picture of someone completely lost. And it says that when when, when he... came to himself, that beautiful phrase, that something broke in him. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish here with hunger? And then the great resolution, I will arise and go to my father. You know, there is a lostness that leads to rediscovery and awakening. And there is a lostness that leads us into the abyss. When we're broken, when we're at the bottom, it's a, it's a key point. There are, there are times in our lives we bottom out on things. Could be relational. Could be issues in our own heart. It could be a variety of different expressions. But we come to places where brokenness is who we are. There's an element of brokenness at work in our life. And in those places, we're invited 
to, to really turn to God. But that's not always how it works. And in fact, I, I put a quotation in, in the handout in the middle column there from Henry Nowen, who is the author we're going to be looking at a lot, whose book, Return of the Prodigal Son, is something that um, speaks profoundly to this particular thrust that we're making. But it says, many people, he writes, live with this dark inner sense of themselves. And in contrast to the prodigal who decided to return home, they let the darkness absorb them so completely that there is no light left to turn towards and to return to. And they might not kill themselves physically, but spiritually they are no longer alive. And that can be obviously true emotionally and relationally as well. That there is a, a choice that we all have at these places of brokenness to turn. And, where, and, and I put this other phrase that where we turn in our failure will often determine our future. It, it's where we turn to in these moments that is the key. One of the great illustrations of that would be, of course, you know, Peter and Judas. We often think of, well, Judas was the betrayer. He's the one that let the Lord down. He's the one that sold him out. And that's true. He did do that. But there was somebody else who failed as well during that period where the Lord was, was delivered up and crucified. And that was his most loyal disciple, Peter, who denied him. In an absolute sense, he denied him. It was a betrayal of a different kind. And if you look at those two, they become a picture of, of two individuals of turning in a different way. I mean, Judas is lost in the darkness of his failure, and so he isolates himself. In his tormented isolation, he ends up killing himself. But I don't think we should underestimate the role that isolation played in his demise and destruction and engulfing. But Peter, we're told, in his failure, and he went into a corner and wept bitter tears, but somehow he drags his broken self back to his spiritual family. And eventually he gets better. And they really are a reminder to us that in our points of failure, that we need to turn back and we need to find our way back home. Not run away and isolate, because things don't get better in isolation. Not like that. And that's his whole point that, we're, that now one is trying to bring home. He's saying where, you know, his own way, he's saying it is exactly that. Where we turn in our failure or when we, where we turn in our pit of despair because, or that, do we get lost in self-pity? Do we, do we begin to define ourselves by what's gone wrong? Do you see, that this is a key place when, you're, when we're sitting in the, and we're sitting with the pigs in the mud. And, and that can look like a variety of things. And one of the things we know here is that Prodigal had failed. There was no question about it. He had failed. He had failed, he had failed miserably. I mean, he had failed at a number of levels, right? He had been brazen. He had been cocky. He had been naive. He had been to, deceived about his own capacities. And he had been arrogant in his demands. He had been thoughtless, thankless, self-centered. His ego had taken the day. I mean, there's so much about what he did. He, his whole play was wrong. It, it, it indicated someone who didn't really take into consideration the feelings of his father. It, he disregarded his gift. He treated it poorly. And then he lost everything. And it was in the place of his, including his self-respect, and it was in his place of having lost 
everything that we're told that he came to himself. And it's one of the great phrases of the story. Something was uh, awakened in him. There was uh, uh, an opening of something. You know what it was? It was the memory. All of a sudden, the memory of home. Part of it was the memory. He's thinking about home, the goodness and the justice of it. He says, you know, my father's house. People who are hired are treated so much better. They're not only given work, but they're, they're given all the food, they need, more than they need. They're blessed. And here I am, completely uncared for, not, not having really anything left. And it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because his stomach is growling and he's half dying. And he comes to himself and his awakening, notice, what does it lead him to? He came to himself, and what does his, his awakening lead him to? It leads him to, his awakening leads him to a resolution. And what is his resolution? His resolution is, I am going to arise, and I am going to go back home. I'll arise and go home. Verse 18, it says, notice, I will arise and go to my father. And what does he say? I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I, I, I'm, I'm going to tell him I've sinned. I've, I, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, and I'm not worthy to be called your son, but I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'm going to ask him for a job. Make me as a hired servant in your household. And there's, you cannot miss the humility that's in that. The brokenness brings him the gift of humility. And it is a gift. Because the Bible says that God resists the proud. But he gives grace. You listen to that to the humble. And I'm not talking about someone, he didn't, he didn't say to, the, to, the, to how we appear, it's, it's what's here. It's, it has to do with honesty. It has to do with brokenness. I know how it is in our, in our world. I get it. We apply for positions. We want to get a good resume. Our resume, our pedigree, um, our educational back, whatever, how people, we get references, people to vouch for who we are. Hopefully there are people who have qualifications and that we can use as a sense of credibility they lend towards us when we're making it we're trying to compete with other people we understand that if, when you apply to certain schools the same principle there's a there's a how do you it's about selling yourself can you hear me when I say that when it comes to God it's not about selling ourselves to make him somehow accept us it's about being broken and open and honest it's about being vulnerable it's about being a little child what it, Jesus said, if you're going to come to really know me in my reality, then you have to come into my kingdom. The way it operates, my operating system is different because you're going to, he says, you're going to have to come as a child. And a ch what is a child? There's that second innocence. You're going to have to come and return to a second innocence. Even the way he uses the term born again in John chapter 3, where he's having this conversation with this very impressive man, Nicodemus. Highly credentials. You know what he says to him? You're stumbling, my friend. What you need to be, and that's when he uses the phrase born again. Basically, you need to get stripped down naked. Like a little baby being born out of the womb with nothing. You need to come vulnerable to God. You need to be open to what he's trying to do. You know, we, when we come to the Lord, we, we have to throw aside all of our 
the thing, whatever we think, our status, our, our you know, reputations, our sense of self-sufficiency, we have to come open. So what are you saying? I'm saying brokenness is a gift. I'm saying some of the most profound moments where God has moved in my life have been where I felt like a failure. That's what I'm saying. Where I let him down in my own heart. And one person might look at that and say, well, what's that? It's nothing. But it is something to me, between me and the Lord. And when you're in that place of failure, you're actually open. Because now grace can move. Did God want us to fail? No. Does God want us to risk? Yes. Does God want us to grow? Absolutely. And how do we grow? But partly by knowing ourselves better. And when we know, when we learn, and again, it's, the, it's so much of what we're hearing. Prodigal decides, look, he could have allowed his pride to keep him there. But you know what we see here? We see this, uh, this it's almost like he says, I surrender. I give up. Now, I've seen people who, and I guess in some way at certain times, in certain areas, I've been the same person where even in the failure, our pride is so strong that we don't want to go home. I can't do it. I'll feel humiliated. I can't do it. What are they going to say? What's my older brother going to say to me? They told me. They warned me. I said I knew better. If I go home, it's humiliating. I won't do it. But he, in his brokenness, instead of getting resolved and just giving up, again, that's that phrase that Nowen uses there where he says that absorbed into the darkness. That's a great phrase. Instead of allowing himself to get absorbed and defined, he comes to himself and it's like this. He's, he's pulling up the flag and the flag says, it's, it says, I surrender. The last bastion is breached. The citadel yields. He says, I don't, I'm going home. It's a beautiful moment because he is saying, I, I, I am not so proud that I can't go back. I'll go back. Now look at verse, again, back in that verse, it says, I will arise and go to my father. This is what I'll tell him. He starts going into this, and he, he starts saying all the things that he's going to do. Now, look at verse, the, the first phrase of verse 18. Just look at this with me. Again, is what? I will arise and go to my father. Look at the phrase in verse 20. And he arose. It's one thing to think good thoughts about all the things we're going to do. And it's another thing to start doing them. As wonderful as I will arise is, and it is wonderful, because it's the sign of a broken man turning in the right direction. But as wonderful as I will arise is, there is a big difference between I will arise and he arose. A lot of Resolution dies on the beach of good intention somewhere between verses 18 and 20. And you know what I'm talking about. That gap is a big deal. Now that brings me to the thrust, or at least a portion of, in fact, the title, you'll notice it's the journey home, but it's also called this, what, an author, an artist, and a painting. And now we're going to begin to interweave another, some other themes into this story of Jesus. And the artist and the, author and the author and the painter painting, we're going to see. But the author is a man named Henry Nowen. That's the man I was referring to. 
The artist is the Dutch 17th century painter whose pictures are on our walls. The, not the originals, obviously, but the copies of, of them. And that's Rembrandt. And Rembrandt, everybody knows him by his first name, Rembrandt van der Rijn. He is this amazingly gifted person who, whose art still speaks to us today. And then the painting that we're focusing on is his memorable and unforgettable The Return of the Prodigal. And the Return of the Prodigal was painted by him when he was a much older man and uh, far advanced in his years. Now, Henry Nouwen, so here, just stay with me. Henry Nouwen, this writer, he, is, uh, he died about 10 years ago. He was a, a Dutch theologian, trained Dutch theologian who becomes an ordained Catholic priest. He ends up teaching at Harvard. He then, at a very key juncture in his life, decides to make a complete shift, and he devotes the rest of his life to working with the physically and mentally uh, disabled in Canada, in Toronto, Canada. And becomes part of a community. And he says he actually felt like he learned more in that community than he ever did in all the other circles of his life. Very interesting. But he had a gift. One of his gifts was this uncanny ability to express his, his thoughts in writing. And he is a, a tremendous Christian reflective writer. And one of the things he talks about is how, at a key juncture in his life, he was introduced rather casually and haphazardly to somebody and we can put the picture up right now, if we can, of the return of the prodigal, because I think it comes out with better clarity on the, on the screen. But he was introduced rather haphazardly to a print of this painting. So this, this picture, uh, somebody just had it on their wall, someone talked to him, and he saw it, and he was drawn to it immediately. And he said part of it was because of where he was in his life and what it meant to him. But he, said he, he says he really, it sent him back into, into the parable. It's, he started revisiting it. He spent a lot of time engaging. He started thinking about it. He said God spoke to him in amazing ways through just the picture. And he was drawn to it. And so he had an unusual thing happen about, three, he, really, he starts to <laughs> truly engage it. It becomes part of his life story. And in, in about three years after his first sort of introduction of the print, he's given this privilege, this opportunity, to be able to go to Russia to view it in person because it's kept in a museum called the Hermitage and because it was purchased by Catherine the Great in 1766. She brought it there. Now, it's not small. It's eight feet by six feet. It's, math. it's actually big. And they have it, and it's interesting because sharing, I've already talked to a few people who've actually seen it and been there. But one of the things that he says that he did, he was allowed to do, they had a connection. Somebody had a connection. Somebody had a friend who knew a friend. And anyway, he ends up, Alexis is the one who's in charge of restoration. He's the museum's restoration department head. And they allow him, usually they just move crowds through and you're given a few minutes. Once in a while, you know, depending on the season, it can be, you can have more time. But very few people were ever given the opportunity that he had. And he even talked about how, how he was hoping when he got there he wouldn't be disappointed because he had built it up so much. And, and he was given four, he was allowed to stay there for four hours by himself with just a guard there who was watching, he said, with some degree of curiosity and concern. And um, they had some interesting exchanges. Uh, like, who are you? And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that was going on there uh, because what happens, he started changing positions because there, evidently there's a window 
where it's kept. It's not directly uh, pointing to it, but it lets light in. And so depending on the day, on where it is in the afternoon, the light shines in different ways in the room. And one of the things that Nowen said was as he was looking at the painting and really engaging it and thinking about why did Rembrandt do it this way? What was going on in his own life of God? What are you saying to me, God? And he, he starts talking, and we'll, we'll probably address this more in the weeks ahead, about how he at first, interestingly enough, you know, Nowen talks about how he really totally identified initially with just the sun being blessed. He says, and later in my life, he started thinking, well, I think I'm the older brother. And he says, finally, as he was much older, he started to see himself more and more as the father, the blesser. But one of the things that's going on, and he, it now and talks about, it's really interesting, because he says, as the sun started changing, he says, actually, the sunlight changed the, the way that it fell on the picture. And he says, you started noticing not just the colors, but it started bringing different, he says, it became a different painting each hour. And he says, in fact, I even started to notice the bystanders that I had never noticed before. And in fact, there's not just three of them. It looks like there is. There's actually four. There's another one in the corner. Way obscured. And he said, why were they there? What, what was this interpretation? What was going on with Rembrandt? Why did he do this? What was it about the story that he engaged that, that, that caused him to choose this way of rendering? And again, a parable invites us to sit with it and to work with it and to think about it. So he was uh, very impacted by this. Because as I was looking at it my own self, Rembrandt's painting is obviously his own interpretation, and it's both um, profound and beautiful all at once. But what's not, all, not always known is that this painting was done as Rembrandt, again, was an older man. But 30 years earlier in his life, as a 30-year-old man, he had actually etched another paint, another picture of the parable. And this, this etching, people have remarked about how it is different. And really, I, it doesn't surprise me because we're different at 30 than we are 30 years later. But in this picture, notice what it's about. What do you see? You, you see that, you know, again, you read the story that Jesus gives us, and he is choosing to center around the movement. This picture is about the movement. It's about the movement of the father to the son. Everything about the window opening, the very posture of the father enveloping his son. But you can see it's like someone who's off to the races, right? I mean, it's this, this movement. It's about the father's movement. But, and, it's, and that, that, is, that has a lot of meaning to it. But when you go back now, he's a much older man, go back to, the, back to this painting, and what do you see? It's not about movement. It's about a moment. And the moment, it's not even just about a moment, it's about the light. Notice where the light, where does the light draw us to? The light draws us to the hands. And it's the hands on the broken prodigal. It's the father's hands, and those hands are speaking. And those hands are saying, you're home. Those hands are saying, you're safe. Those hands are saying, you are loved. In many ways, it's the blessing that maybe not all of us have ever had. And he's saying, this is God. Remember, what was the issue that started this whole story? It was that there were people, the Pharisees and the scribes were saying, why are you interacting with these outsiders, these messed up publicans and sinners? He goes, what are you doing? You're a holy man. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I know, but you know, um, God loves them. And, but they're dirty. They're a mess. They're, they're, they'll contaminate you. God loves them. It's beautiful. He wants them to come home. 
Now, it says in the back, go back to the parable again. It says that he, he arose and what he comes to his father, right? Verse 20, the last verse. Uh, can you hear me? I'm going to try to illustrate this. I was looking at it, I was going, oh, wow, I see it again. There's, the first thing is, you're in the, you're in the mud, you're in the mud, and you make a decision. I will arise. Okay, there's the sense of I will arise, a, a, good, a good resolution. But there's another column called he arose. And we talked about the gap between I will arise, the good intention, and the actual good beginning. There, a lot of good intentions die before they ever get to the good beginning. Between verses eight, between I will arise, this is a good thing I'm going to do, and he arose. I'm doing it. That good beginning. But I'm going to add a third one. The third one is arriving at home. And he was to say, he arose, and he came to his father. And I'm going to suggest there's a gap between he arose and he came to his father. There's a, there's a journey there. Just as real as there's a journey between I'm going to do this and actually doing it, beginning it, there's a choice also between beginning it and actually getting there. See? And a lot of us, we get lost here. We make a good beginning, but we get lost before we ever get home. And I was thinking about this journey home. This idea of getting home may be first love. It might be a return to certain things that God's trying to do in our life. Or it might have to do with breaking out of something that we need to finally let go of and get better. And that's what better is going to look like with God. It might have to do with actually returning and re-engaging a full, real relationship with the Lord. Getting involved again with, with the life with God. It has many possibilities in it. It may have to do with something else that for our life is a homecoming of sorts. It might be the place of just learning how to see ourselves as one loved by God and not being consumed by our world's definition of success, by how our culture tells us we're supposed to look and be, but more defined by what God says we're supposed to be. It might have to do with being open to receiving the blessing of the Lord over us and saying, you are where you belong. But things happen, and so I'm just going to suggest this. The reason the journey is not... And it might be something else that we're trying to commit ourselves to, but we're having a hard time doing it. And I'm going to say that the journey is not always easy. The journey is not always easy. The journey home is not always easy. And it's going to require a degree of resolve and determination. That, and again, what is home? Okay, I'm trying to, trying to, home is the place where we're supposed to be, where we know in our heart God's calling us to. And, and I'm intentionally trying to keep it big because it's God's working in all of our lives. And he's calling us to places. And we know that, but that road is a hard road. There's a, it's, it, take, it can take work to get back home, is the point. It's not always an easy. And we say, oh, it's easy. It's just easy. You just get, you know, you make your mind. No, I'm going to say that the verse looks pretty. He arose and he came to his father. But there's a big gap between. There's a journey back from the far country that has to be made. And that is not always easy. In fact, it can get pretty difficult. And that's one of the reasons why we say we need others. You heard from the very beginning of this message, do not isolate. The whole point of the men's retreat for, for the men in this case is don't isolate. That's true across the board for all of us, though, men and women. Christian life is born to be in community because we're training 
And training is never to really to be done completely alone. There are times where our energy and our enthusiasm and our passion is going to wane, where we're going to feel like we don't have anything left in the tank, where we're going to feel like I've blown it so bad, I, I give up. And that leads me to the second point here, and that is the second idea anyway, and that is that the journey home also is going to have, at times, a lot of doubt in it. And it's going to require us to really secure our faith that God is with us and it's worth every effort that we have. Even when we fail, don't quit. Because I can, again, Jesus invites us to imagine, but can we imagine prodigal on the road going, man, I don't know if I've got what it takes. And all the things that start going through your mind. What if I, when I get home, when I get home and I, I, I ask and they just shut the door in my face, I'm going to be disappointed again. And this whole idea of, of I've blown it is who I am. I won't even bother. And people quit all the time for lesser reasons. It's not worth the effort. And we resign ourselves to this is the way it is. And yet in our heart, we hear God calling us to a home. We calling us to a point that we are not yet at. And not to simply accept what it is, but to contend, to make that journey back. You see what I'm saying? And yet these doubts fill us. Is it really going to be worth the effort? Is it, is it going to be what I was hoping it would be. Sometimes the most difficult person to deal with is us. So they always talk about a manager. They say, one thing we know for sure, you can never be an effective manager of other people if we cannot first manage ourselves. It is impossible. You say, well, that, that's kind of discouraging. No, it isn't. It's inspiring because God wants to teach us how to do that. He wants to help us do that better and better and better. And I mean that in a way of serving and blessing. And the last thing I'll say on this is that the journey home, and here's the deal, the journey home does not always guarantee the outcome we were anticipating. What did he have his hopes set on? If I get home, if I can get there, I'll get a, a job and a square meal. Those are not big expectations. Those are modest expectations. He was hoping, maybe. And it's interesting because, I mean, it would have been interesting if when he does get, got, imagine in our mind's eye when he, get, when, we, when he gets home and he says, you know, I just, I know I blew it as your son and I understand I wasted all of our family money and I understand I made the big thing and, and, and so I'm, but I'm, I need a job so bad. Will you let me have, I'm not asking to be the son, I'm just asking to get a job and to be able to eat. And, he, and imagine the father going, okay, yeah, it's okay, you're, you're hired. You're on. Don't worry about it. Square meal for you, hired servant. But that's what he was anticipating. That's all he was willing to say. He was willing, and you know what? He got disappointed in a good way. Because a lot of times we don't get what we're anticipating when we're dealing with God. What he got was not what he was anticipating. He was anticipating maybe a job and a meal and some good and food to eat. What he got instead was a full restoration the complete blessing. And that's why, again, I love Rembrandt's portrayal because what he's basically capturing is the moment of the, I receive you back fully. It's like, you're home where you belong. Be at peace with me. Find yourself in my embrace. I love you, my son. It's as if he was saying, Jesus was saying, the Father says to us, I love you, my son, and I love you, my daughter. You come home. My hand is with you where you belong. And we all need that once in a while. We need to know that we're loved in our failure. 
And like I said, I know some of us have never felt, maybe some of us have, this is the Father we've always longed for. God will be that. But the Lord, okay, mercy says, you're hired, you get a job. Grace says, <laughs> I know you blew it. But you're my son, and I love you. You come here. You're my daughter. I love you. And that's that kiss of those dirty cheeks. And we find ourselves in that embrace of the Father's hand. I want to, you know, it's important for us to see ourselves as loved by God. Because someday everything is going to be stripped and we'll be just as broken as product. We'll lead this life. And what's going to really matter at the end of the day is have we let the Father embrace us. That's going to matter. Because someday we're going to be stripped. Remember, second innocence. Someday we're going to be <laughs> stripped in a whole different way. And we're going to leave this life. And everything that we've acquired, everything that we've achieved is going to be left behind us. And we will come, we will leave as naked as we entered. And in that moment, when that happens, the Father's embrace will matter all the more. All the more. And we'll let go of all these ideas, especially the ludicrous one that somehow we're really in control. That we will let go of. I will let go of that. I control nothing at the end of the day. I need to surrender to my Father's embrace and find myself in Him. It's a safe place with Him. Safe place. Lord, we thank You this late morning, this afternoon, that You are the one who has given us pictures and stories because they illustrated Your heart to us. And they remind us again, Lord, that we are not simply to passively let things fly by us, Lord, but that we are to we are to contend. There is a role for us to play, Lord, to draw near to you, to trust you, to let you embrace us, Lord. And there are things that we can't control, Lord. There are disappointments that are realities in our lives, Lord. What are we going to do about that? Where are we going to place those things? Are we going to sit in our despair and let it define us? Or are we going to allow your hands to come over us, Lord, and embrace us? Sometimes that place of surrender and of yielding is a hard place to get to. It seems like such a long, long way away. But you invite us home. And um, I pray that we will never forget that it's there that we really belong. So kiss us and love us and be our strong deliverer, Lord. And we put our trust in you. Help us to not run away too fast from this time we're sharing here this afternoon but to remind ourselves what really matters is what we're touching right now, really, at the end of the day. It really does. So we ask for your blessing. Bless our time of giving as we honor you, Lord, as a church and as a people with our tithes and offerings, and bless the song that we close with, but bless these minutes that we're sharing, even now, in Jesus' name. Amen.